So I've kind of shaped this idea that it's a humble fire approach, like cultural fire to me is humble fire. And it speaks to the difference between agency and cultural fire because it's a multi-day, multi-responsibility to return to the place that you're going to burn. It could be you arrive at the space and you build your accountability to not only the place that you're going to burn and prepare, but also to the practitioners that are welcoming you onto ostensibly their homeland. So there's that accountability and reflexivity that you experience that's culturally led, native led, indigenous led. So it humbles you, it grounds you, you know, it lets you maybe remove that veil of public facing or forward facing person. And it really gets into the emotional connectivity and the cultural responsibility that you now have that you're participating in these burns or preparing for the burns themselves. That's a humble fire approach for me because that's before you even pick up a match or before you even start to light, you know, you build those relationships and responsibilities. Hello and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Montai, and today we have a really good episode for you. I'm so excited to share this. Our guest today is the one and only Dr. Melinda Adams. Dr. Adams has a resume that's about a mile long, but the important points are that she is an assistant professor at the University of Kansas, that she has a PhD from UC Davis. She has authored a number of papers that we will talk a little bit more about in a bit here. She is a self-proclaimed cultural fire burner and learner. She is also very much a mentor in this space, obviously through her professorship, her assistant professor position at the University of Kansas, but also just through her Twitter. She is an outspoken advocate for more cultural burning and for different approaches to cultural burning, as well as just exploring the different ways that we can change our relationship with wildfire. She is a member of the San Carlos Apache tribe. She grew up in what is now called Arizona, and she has done a significant amount of work in California, obviously through her PhD at UC Davis, and then also through just her personal connections to cultural burning in that area. Anyway, she is just an exceptional human being, and I was really happy to get her on the show. I reached out to her primarily because I've been really interested in what she's posting on Twitter and just in the work that she's been up to, but also because we met in person about a year ago and I was just taken aback by how wonderful she was to speak to in person. We had been talking for a few months prior to the conference that we met at, but when we first met, you know, she gave me this huge hug and immediately pulled this bracelet out of her purse that was made out of tule, which is a culturally significant plant species in central and northern California. She also noted that it was the favorite plant of her elders and she handed me this bracelet and I nearly cried and now that bracelet sits on my desk at home and I'm looking at it right now actually it's been here since I received it last spring and I just think that anecdote is such a good example such a good representation of who Melinda is and the sort of energy that she brings to the fire space. So in this episode, we talk about a whole bunch of things. We talk about Melinda's background in ecology and how she's brought that into the policy realm over the last year or two. We talk about her recent paper that she co-authored with Chairman Ron Good and Erica Toms called Solastalgia and Solophilia, Cultural Fire, Climate Change, and Indigenous Healing. Some of the general themes we explored were this idea of solastalgia and solophilia, which is kind of a combination of climate grief and moving into active stewardship of the land as a sort of antidote to that grief. And honestly, if you want an antidote to your climate grief right now, this conversation with Melinda will do it for you. We talked about rematriating cultural fire and land stewardship. We talked about the idea of humble fire and ceremonial fire, these ideas being coming into 
fire implementation from a very humble standpoint. That is, you know, putting the fire on the landscape in a really slow, conscious, humble way. And then ensuring that you know what that land looked like before, during, and after fire. And that will mean returning to the land after you've put fire on the landscape. And that can be within days or within weeks or years, preferably all three. And that's kind of what Melinda advocates for is really just developing a relationship with the land by better understanding how these different processes, including cultural fire, can impact that land over the course of different timescales, whether that is days or weeks or months or years. And I just love that idea. I love how much humility that Melinda brings to this conversation. And I just think that we could all, whether we're in the prescribed fire realm or cultural fire realm or the suppression realm, I think we can all learn something from the way that Melinda and other cultural fire practitioners approach this conversation of fire implementation. So I hope you guys learned something from this. I hope you can glean some of that energy from this. And I also hope that you look up that piece that I mentioned earlier on Solastalgia and Solophilia because it's fantastic. You have to purchase it. But if you want to support work like this, I would recommend purchasing it anyway because it's really cool and it would be pretty great to send a message to the publication that we want to see more representation of cultural fire and cultural fire practitioners in publications like this one. So there's my little soapbox of the day. Go buy this paper and I will link to it in this episode's show notes. All right, one last thing before we get started here. Still have a call for pitches out. We are extending the deadline for the applications for the call for pitches until August 8th. So if you or somebody you know is an audio storyteller who lives in an area impacted by wildfire, I would love to hear from them. I'd love to hear their pitches. You can go to our website, which is also linked in this episode's show notes, and find more information on the call for pitches there. And I think that's all the housekeeping I have. So let's get into our episode. Thank you as always for listening. And I hope you dig this one with Melinda Adams. Thanks so much, Amanda, for having me on. I've been a fan of the show and just so impressed with the different conversations that you guys have held and the guests you've had on. So for me, for our introductions as an Indigenous person, I would say Dot A, she, Melinda Adams, Honshle, Mindy Shikish. My name is Melinda. I belong to the San Carlos Apache tribe and they're located in Arizona. I am a indigenous person. I'm an academic. I am a cultural fire burner and a cultural fire learner. I am also an assistant professor at the University of Kansas, where I call home now. And I just graduated from the University of California, Davis, where my work and my dissertation work and research surrounded cultural fire, of course, but more importantly, my relationships and connections with indigenous cultural fire practitioners and what is now known as California. Those are my relationships remain and where the good fire work is tended to and cared for. Incredible. I cannot wait for this conversation. So I'm really curious what drew you to fire initially. Did you grow up in California? Did you mention that? No, I grew up in Albuquerque. So I'm from the Southwest. Yeah, I went to school at a tribal college. So it's one of 37 universities that's located throughout the United States that's specifically for Native American students that are getting their college degrees. And the college that I went to and now where I am back at in Kansas It was a former boarding school. And so what those were, were government sanctioned industrial schools that Native children were taken to, to strip us of our cultural heritages and our identities in order to conform more to colonizer identities. So that's significant because that's the place that I've returned to and where I 
have the honor of teaching over 136 different tribal nations on any given day. So I think there's power in that inner tribal connectedness and wealth of knowledge, especially when we talk about climate mitigation um, and environmental degradation. So for me, fire, what I lead with, and I know a number of cultural fire practitioners lead with, is that fire is deeply embedded in our indigenous ways of being, in our land stewardship, but also fire as kin, as family, as relative. For me, it's embedded in a lot of the cultural stories that my ancestors and relatives have passed on to me. It plays a significant role in shaping our worldview. So I like to use a term like it's a fire worldview. And you find those commonalities with non-Indigenous peoples and allies and supporters, people on the Black line. So there's this shared interest and respect for fire. So you're seeing a lot of that emergence in cultural identities with this cultural fire forward movement. So for me, I'm like you, like I didn't grow up in a fire prone place necessarily, but it's embedded in who I am as an Indigenous woman, as a Native person. It's very much tied to my worldview. That's exceptional. Yeah, that's great. I love that you have a background in ecology and I love that your focus now in some ways is storytelling and you talked about rematriation and you talk about, I think the word is solophilia. Mm -hmm. Is that how you say that? So solophilia, which is a new word to me, and it is a main point in a piece that you recently published with Ron Good. And actually, what was the other author of that piece? Oh, Dr. Okay, Erica Tom. It looks like a really cool piece. I'm going to read it after this conversation. I should have read it before. I want to hear a little bit about what went into that and the sort of focus of that piece and, you know, talking a little bit about bringing that storytelling element, that relationship element into this conversation and how cultural fire can be almost a guiding light in this way or a beacon. Absolutely. So like you said, I come to the work trained as an ecologist. So in my previous work, I'm a graduate of Purdue University. So I studied soil amendments there in like the prairie areas and the Midwest. So it's called biochar and people on the line kind of know what that is. It's charred material, right? The end product. So it's not live fire, but it's the remnants of it that's integrated back into the soil system. And there's positive benefits to it given, you know, the temperature and given the plant communities that you're working with. So I said this kind of previous interview, I come from a very nerdy space of like looking at the plant responses to soil amendments. And so in my mind, coming to California, cultural fire, good fire could be and is an ancestral soil amendment that our peoples tended to and took good care of for millennia. Uh, So that's how I approach the work. Being in California and working with fire, I learned very quickly that fire, everything related is to policy. And then tied to that is public perception. So I came as an ecologist, but quickly learned about policy. And as Native and Indigenous peoples, our whole identity is political. You know, being from a federally recognized tribe, or an unrecognized tribe for people that don't know what that is, you either through your federal status are granted this special working relationship with federal agencies as a recognized tribe, or you're not. And so in California, there's a greater number of tribes that do not have that recognition through bureaucracy holdups, through red tape, through lots of different barriers to navigate to get that federal recognition. Um, So our identities are totally political. And then when you add access to and stewardship of your own homelands, it gets really complicated. So coming in, wanting to learn the ecology, but then also learning these policy lessons throughout the West, I 
understood that it was my responsibility as a native person to learn these things and use uh, you know whatever access to resources that I had to make people aware of this and this is an additional burden that cultural fire practitioners and native peoples that are trying to steward their own homelands must navigate. So that's a little bit about how I've come from ecology into some of the policy work that I do with practitioners and state and federal legislation and the Sola nostalgia piece that just came out with the Honorable Chairman Ron Good, who's a dear friend and a, an incredible mentor, and the lovely Dr. Erica Tom, who is a researcher and scholar as well. And she opens the piece with her own lived experience of being evacuated by wildfire. And it hits home with a lot of people in what is now known as California. You know, they can resonate with it. So she opens the piece. Her and chairman had an exchange about this idea of solastalgia. So what it is, is it's climate and environmental grief that people are experiencing. And it's compounded now by the uh, effects of climate change, especially in the West and where people live. So that's solastalgia. So the short note of it is with the three different pieces, Dr. Tom introduces her lived experience, just beautifully, poetically written and woven into kind of the research that I bring and the lived experience that Chairman Good brings. I follow up with some of the observations that I've had in assisting with getting good fire or cultural fire on the ground in different places in California and working with younger folks and seeing how they're experiencing climate grief. And I will say we had in a particular iteration of the demonstrations, students that were directly impacted by either the car fire or the paradise fire, and they're working on their worldview or their view of wildfire and shifting that into fire as a useful tool as you know, a stewardship tool. So you'll see those powerful reflections that were gathered from those students in that iteration of the course. And then of course, Chairman offers the last and probably most significant piece where he talks about the healing powers of cultural fire. And his term that he used is ceremonial fire. And we can get into a little bit about that in my experience and being with chairman and burning from him and learning from him. I like that he offers this term ceremonial fire because it puts to the forefront the cultural significance of prescribed or controlled burning and how that makes it significantly different than what you hear, um, you know, some of those terms in the fire world. Uh, so last, all those pieces woven together, that offers solophilia, which is a cure or a way to mitigate some of the climate anxiety feelings, nostalgia. So we offer cultural fire as solophilia, and that's the care that you have for a place. If you know a place, you'll care about it. And if you care about it, hopefully you'll defend it against a lot of the climate change impacts that we're facing. So the love for a place, solophilia. I adore this concept. Are you guys sort of inventing the wheel here? Is this like something that was only brought up for the first time in this article? Is this a new concept? I would say academically, there's pieces on, and it's in the Journal of Eco-Psychology, so how we're kind of mitigating some of the psychological effects of things through our connection to the earth and to the environment. So I would say those terms are definitely within academia. For us as Native peoples, we have always understood right. our social and mental and cultural well-being revolves around and is included with our lived environment and our spaces, our homelands. So I would say that the bridging of those two 
concepts or bridging of those two approaches that makes it a unique piece, I think. But for Chairman's point of view, and I'm not speaking for him, but I would imagine that he has seen and experienced his healing properties right. his good fire brings to the lands for, for decades now. Right, yeah. Concept, absolutely not new. Concept, thousands of years old. The language, though, I'm like very happy to have language for that. And the idea of connecting those two terms that I haven't heard before in a way that and makes really so much sense. What I really appreciate is the way that chairman leads and a number of cultural fire practitioners that I work specifically with is that they make a space or they welcome allies, you know, fire agency people, water agency people from the state and federal organizations to good fire or cultural fire demonstrations. And so these lessons aren't specifically for or just for Native peoples. It's important that we're centralized because of, you know, some of the cultural severance you talked about. But yeah, they lead with the thought that there's room absolutely for our allies to learn these lessons too. Yeah, absolutely. Bringing this to a broader audience in a way that centers how cultural burning and how Indigenous people have known and accepted this concept for thousands of years. Okay, so that's like an answer to a question I didn't even know I had. It's just like, how can we come at this conversation without feeling as if we're appropriating the entire concept? But absolutely, just bringing up the fact that this isn't a new concept (laughs) at all by any stretch. Okay, I want to focus more on this idea of how wildfires can reveal our lack of relationship with the land. That was something that seemed to be at the forefront of this paper. How does that sort of manifest in your experiences? That's a really big question. It's a meaty one. But I'm just curious to know how your experiences are reflected by that lack of relationship and how you're seeing us culturally or how you're seeing maybe even just Indigenous folks culturally coming back to a place of having a relationship with the land. Obviously, they never lost that relationship. Really, I'm just trying to get more to the core of how wildfires can reveal that lack of a relationship with the land and what sort of lessons are there to learn and what lessons you've seen learned on the ground as you're assisting with these cultural burns or as you're talking with these tribes or with Indigenous folks. Absolutely. So the first kind of thought that I had when you were walking through the question is, and I know some of the folks that you've had on the show have walked through the difference between cultural fire and a prescribed or controlled burn. And we were kind of exchanging about that before the conversation. And it's still true to hear and listen to for folks that are interested in getting red cards certified or making, you know, fire a profession for them. So right now in the West, at least for the experiences that I've had, the difference between the two, of course, and if I'm listening to chairman, I'm hearing him and some of the other practitioners, they want to reiterate, you know, that cultural fires are different because of that culturally led part of it. So the goals may not be fuels reduction or acreages burned, but instead the return of culturally significant plants that they haven't seen return for quite some time now. And that carries heritage lessons, languages, connections to our culture that other fires just don't introduce to. So I know that's One of the lessons that they teach me is that's the difference between agency fire, which we need as well. Like we're we're on board and supportive of agency fire, controlled and prescribed burns, in addition to the cultural burns that practitioners hold themselves. And also the intergenerational component to it. Previous guests have talked about having children and elders out on the land to learn 
alongside people that are on the black line or that have live fire. So there's room for everybody. And for me, just being an academic and learning about like the, the ecology that's in response to cultural fire and prescribed and controlled burns, I see opportunities for researchers to be on the land and understand like the, the physical properties that change when you have cultural fire demonstrations. But then also public perception, like getting community members, especially when we're doing cultural burns, to learn two main things. So the first is that they're learning fire as a good thing, putting good fire to the ground to mitigate against the large scale frequency and intensity of catastrophic wildfire. So I think we can all agree that we're still working on public perception and rebuilding people's fear of fire that's ingrained in a fire suppressive culture that is agency fire right now. And I will say there's steps forward to work on that public perception, but for now people are scared of it and rightfully so. I've had direct interactions with wildfire or displacement or for me like living in the air pollution and the particulate matters that you see having to evacuate where you live. I mean, those are all traumatic experiences and I want to give voice to that and acknowledge it. So when we have cultural fire demonstrations, we invite as much as we can, just people from the community, farmers, ranchers who might already engage in burning, but also people that live in the places that we're trying to steward and take care of, invite them out to see the positive effects of cultural fire, how calm cultural fire is, like in comparison to wildfire or maybe some of the agency-led fires that you see hit the ground. So that's the first, like public education or educational tool that cultural fires offer in, in my perspective as an indigenous person, as a scholar, and also as a practitioner myself. The second piece that's incredibly important to our communities is that we're educating public and community members. The Native peoples are here, that we have these stewardship tools and lessons that we know how to place fire responsibly and safely. And it kind of doesn't sit well when somebody comes to the cultural fires and they ask, well, how do you know it's not going to get out of hand? <laughs> so I, right, right. I take a moment and I answer if it's me that the practitioners want to respond. Otherwise, I default to the practitioners because they're the experts and the elders. I say we have millennia of indigenous knowledge and connection to this place that guides our decision-making in addition to our community care that we're taking care of our tribal members, community members, people that are there burning with this. We call them practices and protocol that are built on generations of learning and tending to good fire. I appreciate the cultural fire demonstrations that I've been a part of learn from and help lead now because they educate in two different ways and at the same time. So first public perception, working on the fear of fire, fire is a stewardship tool, but then also you're on native lands. There are native peoples here that carry, you know, solutions to climate change and solutions to environmental degradation, but always with our culture and our worldviews first. Right, which brings me to this focus on transitioning from traditional ecological knowledge, which is very obviously critical something that you work in significantly, but translating that into traditional ecological practices and the focus of that in the publication that we've mentioned a couple of times now, can you talk a little bit about that connection and why that's so essential? I'm starting to see a lot more of that and I love it. And I hadn't actually heard of traditional ecological practice, like the acronym. So seeing that in that paper and seeing it in some of the stuff that you're putting on Twitter was fascinating. And I was just like, well, duh, why hasn't this been a concept that I've thought more about? So if you could speak on that a little bit, that'd be awesome. 
Totally. So there's the approach of traditional ecological knowledge. And you see that within agencies, right? How to best work with tribes, best management practices, whether that's DOI, Department of Interior, BLM, Bureau of Land Management, or CAL FIRE in California, Forest and Fire. So it's also within the academic world. So this is where I'm going to dive into my training as a Native American studies scholar and as a Native person that can now you know, reach for things that are written and cited to a broader audience. So I'm excited for that. So you hear this term traditional ecological knowledge that's floated around quite a bit when referencing Native peoples. But for us, it invites uh, appropriation, which I know y'all have talked about on the show before, but then also kind of just relegating to the past, like, oh, that was something that was done a long time ago, but can't be thought of as a solution for now. So there's the feeling or the approach that it's so embedded in the past or something that used to work, but can no longer. So Indigenous peoples in our communities, we know that's not true. And so to better place the terminology within academia, but also within agency relationships is the chairman's good approach, which is traditional ecological practices, because we cannot see the benefits of our traditional knowledges if they're not given the space and opportunity and activation of, you know, seeing them played out on the landscapes or the waterscapes. So I really like this term that he created and educates about is traditional ecological practices. And so that for us, it speaks to that policy piece. Well, yes, of course, we can have our knowledges, but we also need to be able to practice them. So that's where he came up with the term. And I like it because that's a term for agencies to wrap their heads around and to maybe embed more of their policy. But for academia, it also makes us move from static to dynamic, to in the past, to into now. So I really like this term that he created. And then also some of the White House initiatives with embedding Indigenous knowledges into all of their agency initiatives. I think there's conversations that are ongoing right now that tribal leaders are in, in unpacking that term and what it means and who has the right to use it and speak on it. You know, these are words, but there's such power behind them and such history behind them, you know, with colonization. So for us, this paper to traditional ecological practices, it hopefully leverages a little bit more power back to cultural fire burners and being able to get more good fire on the ground. That's fantastic. I'm getting so many more words to put into my vocabulary. Having language to conceptualize things that I've always known to be true and obviously that you guys have always known to be true, but that I just haven't had sort of the language for. So this is good. How does your current work, especially in academia, sort of align with the things that were discussed in that publication? What are you seeing from your students? What kinds of things are interesting them? You know, where are you maybe seeing them moving in terms of all of this? I'd love to just know a little bit about your teaching and about the students that you're seeing coming through and what's intriguing to them and all of that. Absolutely. Well, I have been a lecturer in California for quite some time now and was a part of this interesting class that was at UC Davis led by Professor Beth Rose Middleton Manning, and she's my primary dissertation supervisor. So she invited cultural fire practitioners, basket weavers, language learners into the classroom as experts to train the next generation of scholars and students. And 
I thought it was pretty powerful because the range of student disciplines that were represented in the class, they came from everywhere. So environmental sustainability, agriculture, English, art, history. In my mind, and those that kind of helped with the class too, the lessons of Fire Forward got to spread so much further between these students, like interpersonal connections to their own lived lives, but also their professional networks that they're going to be a part of. For a number of them, they're the future policymakers and shapers and people that might be working in fire agency. So to have practitioners interact directly with them and share their heritage lessons and information about their homelands, I thought that was a pretty powerful educational tool that we were able to view and experience. Going back to the Sola nostalgia part of it, just being around young people and listening to them not quite have a positive view on their futures, that took me back because their futures for themselves may not look the same as their parents or their grandparents, either through the cost of living, like high economies, or seeing catastrophic weather events, you know, with floods and with wildfires and displacement. So for younger people in the iterations of the class, they were having a hard time envisioning their futures, you know, with family or with buying a home or like living in the wooey. That took us back. It took me back, actually, because there's this the grief that they carry around. It's already hard enough to be a college student, but then placing the effects of climate change and them feeling a little bit helpless about it, you know, it resonated again, like the paper, but with the experience, you know, to sort of combat that a little bit, the class was designed and the demonstrations were designed that we would take students out onto the land and learn about cultural fire. So I've kind of shaped this idea that it's like a humble fire approach, like cultural fire to me is humble fire because of the difference. (laughs) Yeah. And it speaks to the difference between agency and cultural fire because it's a multi-day, you know, multi-responsibility to return to the place that you're going to burn. So it could be you arrive at the space and you build your accountability to not only the place that you're going to burn and prepare, but also to the practitioners that are welcoming you onto ostensibly their homelands. So there's that accountability and reflexivity that you experience that's culturally led, native led, indigenous led. So it humbles you, it grounds you, you know, it lets you maybe remove that veil of public-facing or forward-facing person, and it really gets into the emotional connectivity and the cultural responsibility that you now have that you're participating in these burns or preparing for the burns themselves. So that's a humble fire approach for me because that's before you even pick up a match or before you even start to light, you know, you build those relationships and responsibilities. And then you might have the actual burn day, like if the air quality allows so, or if the... um, wind is giving us some stable environments to burn. Then we have the piling and the raking and the building of piling, the raking, and we call it chunking. So you have the land preparation that you're working with other people with. So you're building that camaraderie, you're building that care 
for a place that you're going to eventually place good fire to. So that could be another day. And then there could be the actual burn day itself. So we go over community care and protocol and safety and water and holding. So all the things that are very similar, but different from agency-led fire, you go over that as protocol with Indigenous-led and cultural fires, at least the ones that I've been a part of. And then the main difference is after the burn day, you know, everyone's feeling good. There's positive vibes and camaraderie. You know, you leave and you feel good about it. You are expected to return. (laughs) You know, it may be the next day, it might be the next week, you know, you're expected to come back and see how the plants respond. And you're also expected to come back and clean up, like rake over, mix in the the soil with the burned and charred material to try to create what Chairman Good calls as a midden. So like that environment that's going to benefit the plants the best, like to have them come back and respond. So collectively, that's why they know it humbles you. It lets you know your place. You definitely get in a workout, you sweat, and you hold yourself accountable to the place. So that's why I kind of am gravitating towards calling it humble fire. Yeah, that is incredible. Like that whole time I was just like, I feel like my dopamine was just like going off because I was like, (laughs) I see so many opportunities there and so many ways that that can be such a healing type of fire and such a healing force, like at the individual level, at the community level, at the landscape level. I adore that. I adore that concept. Again, giving me new language. I love it. Humble fire. Yeah, I need to put a paper on it just because it's not just the physicality of it. And, you know, hot shots and people are on the black line, of course, they get their workout in and they have their mental capacities challenged too when they're working on the line. So I definitely want to acknowledge that it's similar in that way, but maybe different in that we have a responsibility to indigenous knowledges and the stories that they flow. You know, it's an incredible experience because you learn about what the landscape looked like before colonization. You learn about uh, you know, how those stories carried all of those years through attempted cultural suppression, you know, which says a lot about the resiliency of our native peoples. At Chairman Goodsburns, we have songs that are exchanged. And for us in our culture, our ways of being and how to be a good human and a good relative, they're carried in those songs on top of having like indigenous languages spoken in places that they belong to. It's an incredibly powerful experience. And again, those all speak to the differences of fire placement and how cultural fire, it is different than other types of approaches, but that there's room for our allies and our supporters to learn that. Because if you care about a place, you're gonna wanna know the history of it. And you cannot be in a cultural fire burn without learning Here's another term for you without learning the homeland histories, the indigenous homeland histories of that place. And all of that is healing, you know, in some form or fashion. So humble fire, healing properties of cultural fire, those all speak to the experiences, at least that I've had and the ones that are shared with other peoples on the line. Yeah, that is so incredible. And it's like thinking of ways to bring allies in, bring people in that are willing to center indigenous voices and center indigenous practices, while also trying to get a better understanding of their own landscapes where they've landed through colonization or otherwise. But nonetheless, just like making those connections, making sure people do develop in some way a relationship to the land beyond exploitation. I just feel like sometimes our relationships to the land are so vague and so disconnected and you don't have the opportunity to see a before, during, and after that is as clear as burning is or cultural burning, especially where you are able to see what the landscape looked like before and what it looks like during a burn. And 
the community connections that are occurring during those things, and then being able to return to that landscape and seeing how it's been revitalized, been refreshed by this force. So there's just so much opportunity for community connection there and for developing more camaraderie around the idea of, you know, managing our public lands or of taking care of our public lands and finding ways to not appropriate ancestral knowledge, indigenous knowledge, while also really trying to incorporate some of those similar values in everything that we're doing. No, I like that, especially giving the care to the place that you live, because inevitably all landscapes and waterscapes are going to be affected by climate change. Now I can speak to that because I've experienced the West and being around, like I said, the particulate matter and the pollution and the evacuees that came through the place that I was living, but then also being in the Midwest where we're trying to build our proactive approach to fire rather than have it be a reactive approach that we see, unfortunately, in some cases in the West. So for now, yes, we don't have like large scale forested areas in the Midwest, but we do have a tall grass prairie that could be seen as igniters and things that carry wildfire if it comes through. But then also for us as Indigenous peoples, you know, those stories and ways of being for the people of the plains are deeply embedded in those culturally significant plants and those less sense of fire stewardship. So for example, I'm working with a tribe right now that just got their land back. So they just physically got some land back and it looks a lot different than how it had been when their peoples ancestrally lived on homelands. So one of the first things that they want to do is burn. They want to hold cultural burn demonstrations to try to shape the landscape, the ecology of it to match more closely to what what they've been accustomed to. And of course, I'm in the Plains area and there was a very close relationship with fire as an ecosystem service, as a tool to separate forested areas from tall grass prairie areas. And then culturally, of course, I'm amongst the people of council fire. So that's literally what their names translate into. So there's opportunity, of course, for Native peoples to reclaim part of their cultural identities through fire demonstrations here in the prairie, but then also agencies that are learning, you know, trickling through or filtering through the West, the message of cultural fire and Indigenous-led prescribed and controlled burns. I'm super interested in making a connection between your ecology work and your work in storytelling, which is I'm sure just like sort of a second nature instinct. And I'm curious to see like how your work in ecology has been connected to storytelling or how you're sharing the data and the information that you're gathering from these more ecological, more rigid scientific research that you're doing and how you're communicating that or how you're translating that via the storytelling. And also just any findings that you have that has contributed to a greater understanding of cultural fire. Right. So I have another publication coming out and it focuses more on the leadership role of Native women in reclaiming or some people say revitalizing this cultural fire movement. And it's exciting to see that that's felt across continents now. So I'm learning about like fire sticks organization and the leadership role of women in what is now known as Canada. So there's some strong threads about the role of women, like in returning fire to landscapes, returning cultural fire specifically. I will say this idea, so the paper is called Rematriating Fire. And it talks about 
what I just shared, but also how oftentimes when the decisions are made to place good fire or cultural fire, a lot of the times it's the basket weavers who happen to be the women because that was our role and is our role in societies of where to place the fire. So I do want to acknowledge that and that they give a lot of the directives. And for us, this will get to ecology in a second, but for us as matriarchal societies, you know, we inherit the names and the cultural worldviews of our mothers. So when you hear the term matriarchal society, that's what it means. That comes from our roles prior to colonization. So colonization came and brought a lot of destructive forces in addition to shifting the gender roles. So in our societies, a lot of the decisions that were made, whether they're environmental, governmental, just our worldviews, they were held and decided by women. So we were a we were matriarchal societies. So for us in this paper that I have coming out in California Native Plant Society Journal, it's reclaiming that leadership role as women with fire placement, but also in native plant cultivation and restoration. And as a third layer, <laughs> I add soil recreation or soil remediation because a lot of our soilscapes across the West and even all across the United States, they're highly degraded due to like large scale agriculture, due to large scale mining. So we have not been kind to our soils, which, you know, has a plant response and a ecological response to the places that we live and raise our families in. So the paper is focused on rematriating those lessons, but I also embed that these women that I work with, these native matriarchs that I work with in fire placement and good fire, we're recreating these soils as part of reclaiming our stories. The practitioners that I work with and myself, we have stories about how the world came into being and our kinship and relationships with, we call them more than human relatives, which includes fire. So it brings that element into some of the ecological restoration academic approaches, but also with agencies that work in eco-restoration. So it tries to move from traditional ecological knowledge. I term it traditional ecological intelligence. So on top of it being a practice, it's more than just oral histories, or it's more than just information that's shared. These were intelligence that were observed for millennia over time and scale. The premise of it is reestablishing the leadership role of women, but also bridging storytelling with ecological restoration and on a grander scale, like climate futurity like how can we envision the future of our climates without acknowledging this ecological cultural restoration work without acknowledging the knowledge you know and intelligence of our native women that is so fascinating i don't post the video for the podcast but i feel like if i did people would be like really freaked out by how big my eyes were while you were saying all of that <laughs> i was just like what this is so cool <laughs> anyway do you have any final thoughts to leave us with today I would just like to leave sharing with the audience that, you know, there's room for everybody with these cultural fire practices with allies and agencies and people wanting to learn more about the places that they live. So the practitioners that I work with, they are open to those invitations if we're respectful of the knowledge that's being shared and the protocols that are embedded in place specific. I also didn't quite talk about it, but some of the biggest supporters are our hotshots, our wildland firefighters themselves trying to learn a different way of placing fire on the 
ground as opposed to being in an agency of fire suppression. And we also have some amazing like tribal fire crews that are out there learning and burning with us. So definitely invitations for that and at least the work that I'm a part of and the work that I do. The academic in me also wants to voice that for so long, research has been kind of harmful to our native communities. And so being an indigenous person in a research space, I'm wanting to reclaim or wanting to like move forward that I'm a native person and just an invitation, you know, for indigenous led research and publications and acknowledgements, you know, it's been appropriated for a bit and there's been experiences and harm done to our communities in that. So I, I do want to voice to academics that we do have native peoples in academia who should be the ones that are approached for this type of academic faced work. And then lastly, the communities that I work with and do my best to build relationships with and hold accountability to, you know, I also want to voice that we have the cultural fire practitioners, but also the basket weavers, the storytellers, the language learners and passers, the educators, our youth, all of that, they play a big role in climate mitigation and wildfire mitigation. So I have responsibilities to all of those roles. And I just wanted to share and acknowledge, you know, my accountability and relationship to those things as well. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some insights. And that was the most insightful episode. I am really excited to publish this. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. I can't express enough how much I appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm a big fan and we say ashant, all good things. Thanks, Amanda. Mm. All right. That is the end of today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I hope you learned something. Huge thanks to Dr. Melinda Adams for coming on the show. And a huge thanks to everybody for listening as always. As I usually do at the end of each episode, I would like to encourage you to share this with somebody who you think might like it. Maybe give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you feel so inclined. And if you are really feeling supportive, we do have a Patreon that you can support by going to the link in this episode's show notes. We have tiers ranging from $3 a month to $20 a month. And all of that funding goes towards supporting projects like our call for pitches to support grassroots storytelling from communities that have been impacted by wildfires, as well as the ongoing editing and production and et cetera costs of this podcast. So if you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could support us in one of those ways, whether it's sharing or subscribing or reviewing or supporting us financially. So let's wrap things up here. Thanks as always for listening and we will catch you on the next episode. <laughs>